Okay, so I have a very important question for you about Tom Paris. No, I would not fuck him, actually. And he's one of the few men I wouldn't. Was that the question? <laughs> that was not my question. It was not, but it's a little bit related to that. <laughs> and I think that the 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 way that I want to get into this is uh, DS9 and Voyager need HD masters because I could not tell in this episode if Tom Paris has a freckly chest or a hairy chest. And the reason for that is because we are looking at a 480i SD version of this show. So I just want to say to CBS Television Studios, who are now pumping a lot of money into Star Trek again because we have Star Trek Discovery coming out like in two weeks, is... Uh, make an HD version of Voyager so I can find out the answer to my question. You know, it makes sense that you would be into Tom Paris. He's just much more your type. I mean, put glasses on the boy in a sweater and then he's, you know, you're, he's your your crack, man. Yeah, Future's End Part 2. What, what do you make of this? You know, these two episodes together, obviously, taken as a whole, uh, would have made a great movie. I feel like Voyager had much more potential to be a movie franchise than TNG did. That's an interesting statement and kind of controversial. Uh, uh, go into that a little well, bit more. I, I'm, I'm curious what your thought process is there. Well, I feel like these two episodes did a hell of a lot better job than any of the TNG movies have been with juggling their cast. Even, I mean, Harry Kim probably ha- has some of the least to do, but even he has his little uh, thing with, oh, you know, being in command and, oh, you're used to it now, Mr. You know, Kim. And, you know, stuff like that. The characters all have a little scene, which... Like generations, what the hell did Doctor Crusher do in in that? I think she had tea with somebody. Exactly. Like this is again, as far as a big story, this episode, Future's End, is a big story. It's the possible destruction, and we're back on Earth, and all of those kind of things. Time travel. Um, in terms of how it uses the ensemble, in terms of how it's a you know fun actiony adventurey sci fi plot. I thought it was very good. I figured I think it might have been interesting to have seen this cut as a movie instead of as as an episode of a TV show. I I actually kind of agree with you. I and I I think that the the reason why your statement makes sense to me is and you know this is something we've been doing a lot. We've been talking a lot about Voyager as a show, which is interesting yeah. because maybe it's because there's just not that much these episodes are not as meaty as DS9 yeah, episodes, yeah. right? Like, there's just not as much going on here. Uh, there's not a there's not as as much to analyze. But I think that what we were talking about a few weeks ago about how the Voyager cast, in a lot of respects, feels structurally similar to the way TOS approached its cast, where you had your main three people, yeah. and then you had Uhura, you had Sulu, you had Scotty, you had Chekhov kind of on the periphery. And so the movies worked because you could check in with those periphery yeah. characters, and you didn't need a lot of stuff, and you didn't feel like you were getting cheated out of a storyline because they were not... Uh, you know, treated with the sort of character development that the TNG cast did. So Voyager movies might have worked better, I think. You're right, because we don't really expect a lot out of Harry Kim, and the show isn't really giving us a lot. Yeah, so when you have a Harry Kim him- episode, it's like, eh. But as a side character who's, you know, the adorable little puppy dog who somehow times gets command and he can do it, he's a great character in this one. Yeah, because like he doesn't have a lot to do in either of these episodes, but he in, in Future's End and Future's End Part Two, but it's like it's okay because yeah. we get what he's doing. Like he is the puppy dog, inexperienced bridge officer who's fresh out of the academy and is getting thrust into a situation that he's perhaps, you know, a little not exactly ready for. And he pulls it off okay, I think. But you're right. Like that's that's what he's doing in this yeah. episode. We get it very immediately, and we don't really need, uh, you know, a strong character through line for Harry Kim. Yeah, he, this, yeah, when he is treated as a main cast member of a show that's trying to be an ensemble piece that isn't doing it very well. Again, we've said many times who is Harry, Harry Kim. He kind of likes his fiance from back home, but never mentions it. He plays the clarinet, although they've mostly forgotten that. He loves his mom, but he never talks about her. Like, who is Harry Kim? Well, just a guy on the bridge. And again, sometimes he gets command, and he's still going to do a fine job because he's Starfleet. 
Right, exactly. Well, literally Starfleet, because that's Bolan. Yeah, I mean, that's really the only like character he has is is his friendship with her. And honestly, I see a lot of Harry Kim and Bolana as more about Bolana in a way. Largely because Bolana is a more well-defined character. I do like her more. I do find her more compelling to watch. I, I think, yeah, you're right. Like, in this episode, she obviously doesn't have much to do. But on the whole, I think that Bolana you, you can kind of, I think, in a way, divide the, the Voyager cast into, like, three tiers. And you've got your first tier, which is obviously, like, Janeway the Doctor. Then you've got your second tier characters, which are, like, Bolana maybe Tom Paris. And then you've got your third tier characters, which are, you know, Harry Kim and Chakotay. And, and wild cards gets... like Tessa Neelix, who... Should be first tier characters, try to be second tier characters, but often get written as third tier. I, I think you're right, yeah. And I think you see that well, you'll see that most clearly in, in, in the next yeah. episode, Warlord, which, I am but, which I'm also so very excited, excited to, to talk, talk about. about. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, Futures End Part Two is I think a less successful episode hmm. than Futures End. I don't know that it I don't know that they really knew how to pay off the storylines that they set up in Future's End. I mean, you get like the episode starts out very strangely where Tuvok disappears and comes back and is giving them hot dogs and they're just sitting around like bullshitting for five minutes. Yeah, and 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 again, if that's a scene in the middle of a movie, that's fine. That's just all right. We've got to calm down, re-level set, but this is where we're beginning it. Right, because if you remember how Future's End ended, it Mm. was... Uh, uh, the the news footage of Voyagers streaking through the the atmosphere of Earth and and Janeway going off oh, fuck yeah and then we get Futures End Part Two and it's like hanging out in the sun while Tom Paris flirts with uh, you know Sarah Silverman and you're kind of like what what is this and and then it it, it kind of spins off into these different storylines which never feel yeah. complete like I don't oh. I, I still like this episode. I still think yeah. it's very entertaining and kind of like batshit in a in a fun way. But for example, the storyline with Bolana yeah. and Chakotay in the basement with the the Waco people or whatever the fuck they're supposed to be. It's like I mean, that's a very like mid nineties sort of storyline in a it's way. It's because they saw uh pulp fiction and then wrote this episode. I mean that I, I, I don't know if the time frame works for that, but that feels like again, one of those Tarantino scenes, but Voyager does not pull off a Tarantino scene like that. And it's, yeah, and it's, I mean, the timeline does work because Pulp Fiction came out in, in 94. Okay. And this aired in, in 96, so. And I mean, we're yeah. not going to begrudge that movie for being massively influential on a lot of uh, other other films and shows and stuff, but still. But it, it, it feels like Voyager trying to make a statement about late 20th century politics or mm. or i mean it, it's very strange because chakotay and balana are are non-white people and tuvok is also one of the people mm. that comes to rescue them and he is obviously a non-white person and you've got these white guys which are essentially uh i mean i guess now they would be trump voters mm-hmm. and or maybe they're you know boy scouts i don't know they're I mean, ammon bundy a, basically I mean, we just wait. We just need to talk for a second about the fact that Trump is now trying to create the Hitler Youth uh, by by giving overtly political speeches to the Boy Scouts but and anyway. telling the cops to be uh, more brutal to police office to uh, suspects. Which yes, yeah, is all very yes, yeah, is great. I will say everybody suspects Donald Trump of being a criminal. So actually, he is one person I do support police brutality against. <laughs> if it, if any cops are listening to this, I don't respect your profession one bit. But I will if you beat up Donald Trump. But I think that in terms of what that storyline is supposed to be doing, I, I mean, I get what they're yeah. trying to do. But but why in this episode? And I mean, I, it's I'm, the only I'm place they Star- can fit it because it's 20. 20- yeah. But I mean, like, I'm all for Star Trek having a social conscience, but it seems a little weird to put it in this episode. Like, I just I don't I don't get what they yeah. are doing with that storyline fundamentally. No. And it, and it doesn't. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's just like, oh, Tuvox here shoots with face and rescues them, and they go fuck off again. It's like, what? It it feels in some ways like they're padding the episode. We got an extra five minutes. Okay, Bolana and, and Chakotay are going to be on a predicament. What could it be? Well, let's put them here. But on the other hand, it's not fleshed out enough. It it does right. it doesn't. It, we don't. I could see an entire episode based on 
you know, two characters from Starfleet get trapped with a bunch of, you know, with a bunch of Bundys, and they're dealing with uh, this response towards the government, which is possibly completely irrelevant in the 24th century. I mean, Balana and Chakotay have n- may not have any frame of reference for what they're dealing, what these people are dealing with so passionately, and by the time of the Federation, these issues are going to be non-existent or irrelevant, or maybe they are the nightmare of these people that they're, you know, they do see the Federation as this utterly collectivist thing and they need to stand as individuals against. I mean, these are all me- things you could pull from this. You And frankly, you've got a couple of different uh, people holding them hostage. They will all have different views. This could be a very interesting way of having this debate, but in this episode, it's just, you know, an extra five-minute filler. I wish they had either expanded it greatly or taken it out altogether yeah i agree with you because i i think that one of the problems with future zen part two is that all of the plot lines just kind of feel like vignettes in a way and there's a way to do that but when you are dealing with something as you know potentially explosive as sort of white supremacist (laughs) terrorists it's it's just very tone deaf to stick it in an episode and and not really do anything with it i mean i guess just just even to the point where they they seem they seem incredibly stupid which might be deliberate i don't know but they say like oh they're wearing you know military uniforms and all that kind of stuff and you're like I guess, but would someone in like late 20th century America really identify Starfleet uniforms as some sort of military uniforms of the American military? It, it's very strange. To me. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, uh, doesn't uh, Sarah Silverman at one point uh, refer to she she says to the doctor like he's wearing a leisure suit or something like that. Like it looks it looks more like that or, you know, pajamas or something like that. You're right. Yeah, it doesn't ex- necessarily look like a formal military uniform of course they're 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 implying that i I mean then the understanding is that the uh that the bundys in this episode think that they're part of some super secret black ops organization which is why they're wearing these weird uniforms they've never seen before like is that is that what their thought process is Right, it's it's very very strange, and and then of course Tuvok rescues them, and they think they're being attacked by the federal government or something, and they get shot by the phaser, and they're rescued, and you're like, that was the point of that, okay? I I think in a lot of ways we have to say that this is coming from a slightly naive time, in that <laughs> <laughs> I yeah. mean, for us to be thinking about what. Saying to somebody in 1996 versus 2017, you know, white supremacist gang, you're going to have two very different things. I mean, in the – in 96, yes, you will admit that these things exist, but they are more isolated cases. Now we have more of an understanding of the systemic uh, nature of it, of how it may be possibly very ingrained in certain – for example, the police, certain organizations within society and – uh, uh, frankly, I think it's just a case of we're maybe a little more woke than they were at the time, and therefore this as a little fluff adventure that they could get into in America isn't as cute as it might have been. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right, actually. I think that's why that that kind of makes sense to me, that that, that, that storyline reads very differently in the America of 2017 than it did in 1996. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the Doctor then, because the Doctor has a a fairly fundamental shift in this episode. And, well, first of all, I I don't want to give short shrift to the very brief mention of the fact that the Doctor says that he is in the process of retrieving his memory files. So... There you go. Okay, <laughs> they're they're they they're backpedaling already on it, I guess. Right. I mean, he's and especially like in the next episode, he seems to know who Kess is. I mean, and he you know he gets this device that lets him walk around. That is the culmination of his character arc, or at least that you know the next step in this arc that he's slowly been getting more and more. Again, it is building on what has come before. Yeah, and and and. I, I was excited to get to this moment for the doctor yeah. because I don't think it will come as a surprise to you that that this is a pretty fundamental shift in I think the character of the doctor and in the show, frankly, yeah. because now they're able to have the doctor act more like a quote unquote normal member of the crew. Yeah, I mean this is something that I had predicted kind of early on in the doctor's uh 
character that eventually he's going to get the ability to walk around the ship and possibly planet side because you know you just will want to do more with this character if he's going to obviously the show likes the character the show is giving him things to do and if, if he is stuck in one room possibly two he is going to have a much more limited role so it is very nice that they gave this this to him i'm curious to see where they it goes i'm i think it's interesting that they make a point to you know balana's mentioning at the end well it's not quite as simple we've got to do some like th- this does require somebody else to help set it up uh but beyond so they i i feel like that is that's kind of an out for certain stories well, why couldn't the doctor just you know oh well there's no one else to set it up there so you know th- this has to be a danger still kind of a thing uh, yeah no i agree with you but at the same time i i think that, yeah. that one of the one of the the things that they've been doing with the doctor is giving him more autonomy over his own mm-hmm. program and so i, I you know I would not be surprised if they backpedal in that as well. Yeah, right? like, and I mean the the I, implication that I'm getting from that is it's not like an hour's long. Like it's a it's probably about as elaborate as it would be for any member of the crew to go into a slightly hazardous environment. You know, they're just going to need sure. an oxygen mask and a and a, and a suit. Like sure, it's the, yeah. it's the level of that. But I also, you know, I also think not to go back to the 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 Bundy storyline, but but I also think that it's interesting that. Um, and you could say that this is a lack of care on Voyager's part because, of course, I have said yeah. many times that, that one of the things that is a hallmark of Voyager as a television show is a lack of care, lack of attention to detail. But, you know, when, when he goes into the basement to rescue Bellana and Chakotay, he is obviously not scared at all because he can't get shot yeah. because he's a hologram. But at the same time he seems to forget or not be aware of the fact that he is vulnerable because of this emitter thing. And if the emitter gets shot and destroyed while his program is inside of it, it's by all indications because of the fact that Starling was able to download his program and it disappeared from Voyager, which we'll talk about because that's not how computers work. But anyway, uh, that, you know, these are writers never understand how computers work, but I think it's like, you know, one of the things that I think is going to be interesting to watch with the evolution of the Doctor as a character now that he has the ability to leave sickbay and leave the holodeck yeah. and go out into the real world and, you know, assumedly like he's going to start going to the briefings and all that kind of stuff, you know, he can respond to medical emergencies now all over the ship, is a, a realization that he's also vulnerable yeah. for the first time in his life because if his mobile emitter is injured or just, or destroyed... Uh, you know, while he is downloaded into it, and his if that means his program is gone from the ship, yeah. that is essentially him. And so, and it's much more vulnerable than the ship's computer. Yeah, I don't know how much that is going to affect him in a way because yes, when uh, 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 when Ed Begley is torturing him in the first in this episode, he uh, is surprised that he is able to feel pain and stuff like that. And he's, but I don't get. Obviously, that interrogation gets interrupted, but you don't really get the sense that the doctor is going to capitulate to this pain and tell him everything about Janeway, is he? I mean, at at the end of the day, he's a hologram, but he's a Starfleet hologram, and I I I don't think the doctor will get a major fear of death based on after this. You know what I mean? Like, in the, even if he can be damaged and destroyed and killed, he still has the mission to do, and he is still the best to do it, and. By God, the doctor's got to get it done. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. So, so that's a, a good segue to to talk about uh, uh, Starling then, because I don't know to what degree the show is trying to convince. I mean, they seem to be making this guy a little too evil, frankly. Mm. I get that the show is tracking in a very sort of black and white action adventure, good guys and bad guys kind of story here but i don't know like janeway doesn't seem to come across as convincing enough i don't think that there's much attempt made to convince starling who they are what they're doing why they're doing it 
you know, the whole thing just seems kind of like we're not going to tell Starling things because if we did, the plot would end. And I have not made that criticism of a Star Trek show in a long time, but that seems like the case in this episode. I mean, when they had the scene with his assistant going to retrieve him from uh, Voyager and all of that, uh, where I thought the episode then was going to go was the twist is it's not actually Starling who sets off, you know, who uses the time machine. It's his, he would have, he, he knew enough to calibrate it, right? It was this assistant who made the mistake and that's why this happened. Like, I thought that was a more interesting direction they were going to go in, but, you know, because that also gives Starling the opportunity in classic Star Trek sense to redeem himself and to right. eventually realize that, yes, I have brought good to the world by bringing at this technology but at a certain point i'm going to cause damage and i mean other in in here he's just a cackling villain without a mustache right and i mean sure like ed bagley does a great job as a cackling villain without a mustache and i'm entertained by him but at the end of the day it just seems very sort of flat like all right i guess that was what this character was about and i is is he like is he a stand-in for sort of like you know, cars like cancerous capitalism. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching. But. I, I mean, I think that's where they're trying to go with it. That he is doing this. I mean, you have certainly Starling and the, and Janeway can agree on the good of technology, and they probably could geek out about a lot of things together. And of course, if Janeway were confronted with a ship from 500 years in the future. She would want to study the hell out of it. She would want to see how this thing runs. She would, you know, she and Bolana yeah. and Harry Kim would be spending, you know, months just tinkering with this. And but they would eventually be using it to figure out what technology is going to benefit society, what is going to help us the most. And Starling is moving entirely out of greed. He has he's not content with having you know, made an industri- made a technological revolution. He wants more. You know, whether it's simply whether it's for the adulation of history or the money in his bank account, and probably both of those. Um, those aren't what's going to motivate someone from the Federation. Right. Right. Yeah. And and also, I mean, you know, speaking from the vantage point of twenty years after this episode yeah. was made, uh, I think we could say a lot about the internet, but but I don't know that. Um, I don't know that it's been a, a unmitigated uh, good uh, for for society, <laughs> uh, uh, it, and I'll just leave it there. Yeah, I mean, this is a very long conversation, but I I think it could be argued that this is technology that hasn't always been used responsibly, and certainly there is this idea in tech circles that you throw enough tech at something, it's going to fix the problem, which comes at the expense of. I, I mean, it's the whole joke of, you know, tech tech companies are reinventing public transportation, you know, rather than – it's a very ahistorical look at technology that just – it doesn't matter what's come before. It doesn't matter whether or not society, quote, unquote, needs this technology. We can do it and we're going to release it. I, yeah, yeah, I, yeah. In a way, it's – I mean, I want to say it's prescient for how, you know, I feel about, for example, Elon Musk, that asshole, but – uh. I maybe it's not pressure. Well, Richard, he's going to build a hyperloop. He got verbal approval from the government to build it. Fuck that fucking dweeb. Um, but I, I, I think maybe perhaps Voyager is suggesting that this is there will always be tech bro assholes in the world. Depending, you know, no matter what tech. I mean, I'm sure you could make this exact character for the Industrial Revolution. Yes. Yeah. No. I, I think you're right on that score. Um, and I guess finally, well, there's two other things to talk about with this episode. Uh, I, I want to dispense with Braxton very quickly oh. because, you know, he's kind of a non-entity. Because the episode disappears in this episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, there's something about him that I just don't like. Here's the thing. I have so many problems with his appearance at the end of this episode. And this is a lot. Uh, these are partially my problems with Janeway, too. I mean, y- this is actually going off of your point of what you said. They don't really try to convince starling that much at the end of the episode braxton appears and says oh you're in your wrong time i need to take you back and janeway says last time i saw you you know you were homeless and this was happening and braxton says well i didn't have that timeline and even though i'm a federation time cop i have no interest whatsoever in asking any more questions about your meddling with the timeline you know this is not interesting to me 
I have to take you back to your position. Uh, right. Janeway says, well, can't you just leave us here? No, it's the prime directive. And then Janeway says, okay, even though every single captain on every Star Trek show ever has bent and broken the prime directive for good justifiable reasons, and we have good justifiable reasons, I'm not even going to bother arguing them like, okay, let's just go back to our previous position. I mean... In a way, what this reminded me of was that novel we read for the Patron Special Federation. Um, the Oh, the one that we did last year. Yeah. yeah. Um, so basically, at the end of the novel, um, Picard and Kirk, through time manipulations, are both dealing separately with a disaster, and they can't communicate with each other. But they're in a classic prisoner's dilemma kind of situation, and... If if both of them make a slight sacrifice, they'll both get through it okay. If one of them decides to go for broken, fuck the other, you know, they'll be, be destroyed. And the two of them make the decision to do the slight sacrifice based on the justification that there are going to be certain values in the Federation that will be constant. No matter what century you're in, if you're in the Federation, you are going to be viewing the needs of the many and the needs of the few and all of that. Um, And I feel like this... This treat the treatment of the prime directive is something that is very important and must not be broken and has to be followed, except when it's not the right thing to do. And you, as a Starfleet captain, should fucking know when it's not the right thing to do. When you when when intervention is the right thing. I mean, yeah, I feel like that is a Federation value too. Just because we've <laughs> every single captain we've seen has bent and broken it when it's necessary even fucking picard has what is it nine prime directive violations uh i think this is a very good example of something that janeway and tuvok could have argued should be you know violate that prime directive braxton yeah i mean well i i have two thoughts about that number one of course is that that's not that's not the point of this episode i know and then like they just need to get back to the delta quadrant because that's the show yeah. Uh, and that's the sort of like real world facile, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, argument against that. Um, I, I think the other thing there is this is not the prime directive. This is the temporal prime directive. And, you know, it's, I guess, similar in structure and concept to the prime directive. I think this is the first time we've ever heard of something like a temporal prime directive because yeah. it doesn't exist in the 24th century. And I assume that it is a little more strict only because they have to protect the timeline. They have a history of what the USS Voyager did in the Delta Quadrant when it got back to Earth. And they don't want to... I mean, who knows what's going to happen? You know, two years from now, uh, they might destroy the Borg or something. And so, like, they, they need to make sure that the things that happened still happened. And by putting... Um, by putting Voyager back in Earth in the 24th century, those things are not going to happen. But at the same, I think- at the same time, the timeline has already been messed up, and I, 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 I yes, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a, as you say. I understand the real world reasons behind it. I understand why this had to happen at the end. They are not going to bring Voyager back to Earth in the middle of the third season, and then just have. Yeah, they're they're not going to do that backup plan that they had with the caretaker. Now, I I, I get that. Although, as as we talked about last week, they they probably should have done that. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a separate conversation. Yeah, but yeah, no, I I get what you're saying. I I, I agree with it you. It makes me think, think less of Janeway for just immediately saying, okay, like take away the whole Bolana and Chakotay in the Bundy compound and give me an actual conversation between Braxton and Janeway. Yeah. And I I think that, you know, what you're starting to see here is that the 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 subject matter and the thematic resonances of these shows are starting to chafe against the structure Mm. that they're made in. Yeah. Uh, You know, we're not talking about a a serialized, you know, a heavily serialized television show that is going to be asking questions like that and having to deal with things like that because they have to get back to the status quo for next week's episode to happen. So, and yes, it does feel a little unsatisfying or, or a little, uh, you know, short circuited, but at the end of the day, I guess it is what it is because 
this is still not that show and they need to get yeah. back to the Delta Quadrant so Kes can have her adventure as a warlord. Yeah. And I mean, I liked Kes's adventure as a warlord. That was worth it. But um, <laughs> well, uh, I guess the last thing I have to say is that uh, there's this brief, you know, Sarah Silverman steals the phone from Paris and is talking to Janeway. I do wish the episode had figured out a way to get the two of them to have a proper scene together because I think those two the two characters would have a lot of interesting things to say to each other. Yeah. And and I don't know. I'm glad you mentioned Sarah Silverman because I also want to br- briefly yeah. mention uh, the Tom Paris Sarah, Sarah Silverman romance, oh. which I just mentioned it. So we don't have to talk about <laughs> it. Uh, um, it happened. It was there. My boyfriend was watching it with me and he's like, you can really tell that she's not really doing she doesn't like to do romantic scenes like this and especially you know knowing where her career went later like this is not something she's great at and, and, and right. you can tell she is i mean i it, it seems similar to what you said about starling like you know he's not a great villain i like the way ed begley is playing him i don't think rain robinson was that her name yes uh, I don't think Rain Robinson for what for whatever reason that was her name that was her name. They they were reading a lot of Stan Lee comics at that during that week. Um <laughs> I think she's it is a case where you know the actress is elevating the material in a lot of ways. She's not I would not rec- re- if she had just been played by generic guest star actress, I would not probably have noticed her as much. And Yeah. I guess that's about all I'll say on that. Well, uh, the last thing I'll say about, uh, you know, the Sarah Silverman guest star appearance, and I don't know how seriously we should take this statement, but uh, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Brian and Braga. I don't remember. Did say that they had discussions about bringing her on as a main cast member because they liked her so much in the show. I don't really see that. I think she's fine, but I don't think that she was lighting up the screen or anything. I, I mean, it could uh, have been in the case of they didn't love the character, but the you know they, at, at this point they were thinking of killing off one character and replacing with the new character, and, and if they liked working with Sarah Silverman, well, why not consider her? Yeah, that that could certainly be the case, and and you know having another woman on the show is always a good thing. So, and you know, I'm fascinating. I, I, fascinated with that kind of character somebody who is from you know a much less technologically advanced time but yeah we've seen so many people from other from uh prime directive protected worlds or from time traveler whatever who are capable of understanding the federation and who were just born in the wrong time and who in many cases decide to join the federation again that first contact episode is a perfect example and I really would love to have seen them take this character seriously. How is again Rain Robinson is going to be able to deal is going to be fascinated with the 24th century tech. She's going to love everything. She's going to want to learn all of that, but at the same time she is very behind and very, you know, naive on a lot of ways just because she is in a new I think that's an interesting kind of character. It's a shame they didn't decide to do that. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. All right, well, I think that's it for Future's End Part 2. We're going to talk about Warlord in just a minute. But before we do that, I just want to take a quick opportunity to remind all of you, our loyal Truckabout listeners, that Truckabout is listener-supported. Please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow. Check out our reward tiers. We have uh, cool things like, for example, uh, getting each episode of Truckabout one week ahead of time yeah. so you can live in the podcasting future. Uh, we also do patron specials once a month on on various topics. Uh, for example, we did uh, a one on Mass Effect. We did one on the novel Federation. Uh, we've done episodes on Klingons. We've done episodes on, on various Star Trek things like Trekkies, all kinds of stuff. So if any of those sound good to you, uh, please go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now. Now let's talk about Warlord. Which is one of the best TOS episodes I've seen in a while. <laughs> it totally is. I mean, it really, the sets on the planet particularly look like that, They're the way they're lit and all of that, but it really hit me during the scene when Kess and Tyran are confronting each other and they have these great Dutch angles and these close shots. Like, it was... I would not have appreciated this episode if you'd just shown it to me at a random thing. But as I mean, was that deliberate? Where were they explicitly trying to recreate that feel? Because this does feel I, like that plot. 
I, I doubt it, but I, I think that what you're seeing is the fact that, and a lot of people say this, I, I am not the only person to say this, but I think that in the way Voyager approaches its characters and its storytelling, Voyager sometimes feels a lot like yeah. TOS. Uh, and I think it's just because of the fact that it's a very sort of self-contained show that doesn't have a lot of recurring storylines, especially now. I mean, the second season was a different thing, yeah. but I don't know that the show felt as much like TOS in the first and second seasons. It felt much more like the Michael Pillar TNT, yeah, yeah, yeah. frankly, than it does now. And I really like this episode. Yeah. <laughs> I And I, I will make kind of a controversial statement, but I think that Jennifer Lean is one of the best actors on the show. No, this, I mean, this is an entirely special effects driven episode and the special effect is Jennifer Lean acting completely different and showing the fuck out of her range. Like this is a scary episode in a lot of ways, just because again, we know who Kess is. We know what Kess acts like we know. And she's acting completely opposite and unhinged and very, and, and not, not only that, but but she is she's playing a completely different character. But then at times she is playing a version yeah. of that character that is being subtly influenced by Cass. Yeah, and even so, she's really she's really playing three different characters in this episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the scenes where she is as Cass is a, when she again that confrontation scene, and when she's like, "Yeah, I know, I'm just gonna kick you out." Like she is the most hardcore badass version of Kess we've ever seen because. You know, Kess has never really needed to be that just much of a hard ass, but she's totally capable of doing it. Like I said, it was a scary episode. And I, I, I think that um, some people on the staff must want Neelix and Kess to break up because yeah. that that scene in, in the holodeck where the, the quote unquote Kess, who's not really Kess, uh, you know, breaks up with Neelix. And then, of course, it's left ambiguous at the end of the episode whether or not that's actually happening <laughs> or not because that was not really Cass. But then again, Cass is there. So was, was she influencing uh, uh, herself? I don't know. Uh, but it just seems to me like that was something that was a long time coming. And I, I think that Neelix is an okay character, but I also feel kind of strange and conflicted because I kind of liked seeing him getting his heart broken. Is that a weird thing to say? <laughs> like, I don't know. I like, just felt really good at like, cause he was such a fucking, uh, you know, creepy, emotionally abusive person in the second season with the whole Tom yeah. Paris thing that I don't know that I really like Neelix, you know, in this kind of context. So well, the ep- watching him get his heart broken was kind of enjoyable to me i mean i feel like the series has swept neelix's jealousy are completely under the rug um i i (laughs) well it's a very television approach to interpersonal or emotional issues right like they had that one episode where they got stranded on the planet tom paris and neelix and they had to raise the little you know reptile baby and then everything was fine uh that okay i mean we didn't really i don't i don't think that we need a character in a television show like star trek voyager that is going to be irrationally jealous all the time of his three-year-old girlfriend (laughs) so i'm fine with the choice to get rid of that but at the same time that was still something that was there and there are just elements to neelix that i just find kind of creepy so like yeah let's I, I wanna I wanna dispense with this because I wanna talk about the cast stuff because of course yeah. Jennifer Lean is the most important part of this episode. But uh why was the show showing us so many shots of Neelix's feet at the beginning of this episode? Because they spent I, time was, on that makeup, damn it, and they wanted to show well, it know. off. And and do you really want an H D version of Voyager, by the way? Uh, maybe just <laughs> skip this episode or, or skip that scene. Uh, we don't need to spend the money on, on that scene particularly. Just leave the film there. Uh, but yeah, I don't like what what is the show doing? Like there's there's something about Voyager, which is like this is a really good episode. It's very strong. It's got a very good uh, uh, acting performance at its core. It's really fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And it also has emotional resonances to a relationship that's been developing for a long time. And what I mean by that is Tuvok and Cass. Uh, but not a romantic one. But 
then then you get these weird things where it's like we need to show Neelix's feet because he's an alien and they're weird. And you're like, I don't care what Neelix's feet look like. And please stop showing them to me like I'm supposed to be impressed by this. I think they're supposed to be grossed out. I mean, this is supposed to be. But isn't that like a weird yeah. thing for a Star Trek show to do? Like he's an alien and he has gross feet. Look at this. And you're like, OK, I think they're trying but... to put him along the lines of a lech like quark in this episode. But I don't <laughs> Like, cause it's, I don't think Kess and Neelix are great as a romantic couple. I don't think the, uh, the show has ever figured out what their romantic life is like. And frankly, they, sh- they, I, I can buy that they get along, that they're very close and intimate with each other. I mean, it's, it feels like the kind of thing where they're, it's a male, female pair of best friends that are just in a relationship because men and women don't know how to be friends with each other. Right, yeah, and and which you know actually is funny because there was this like uh, uh, article that I saw somewhere the other day, which basically was like, yeah, men and women still are uncomfortable around each other, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, straight people, you just get your shit together. Yeah, and I I think that like the other thing too is that um, Cass giving that speech to to Neelix when they're having lunch, yeah, it it feels like the show is trying to have its cake and eat it too because. Everything that the non-Cass Cass is saying to Neelix are things that I have thought and I think probably the audience has yeah. thought. Like, Cass doesn't live very long. Cass was also very young when Neelix met her. She was of age as an Ocompan, but, you know, still. Um, I'm not talking about some sort of statutory rape situation. No, it's like someone 40 falling in love with someone who's 20. Sure. But... The thing is, like Kess is saying, you know, I was young when we met. I, this is the first relationship mm-hmm. I've been in. I might want to spread my wings a little bit, et cetera, et cetera. And this is all stuff that I have thought. Yeah. And I think that probably you have thought as well. And the audience has probably thought. And so the show is trying to give it to the audience. But then it wasn't really Kess. So, like, how are we supposed to take that? Yeah. I, 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 and I mean, I didn't take it to be in necessarily indicative of her real feelings. I th- it does feel like just, you know, Tyrant is trying to get Neelix out of the way so that he can do his mischief, you know, and just right. the easiest way is just to break him up, piss him off. And if he is using certain flaws in the relationship that do exist, and I mean, it just seems like more like at that point of the episode, Tyran is still fairly astute and very good at breaking people and... He's very he he can immediately see the cracks in their relationship and just drive a wedge very easily without even trying. Like that's all I took from that sequence. Right, but I but I think it's like really well done though yeah. because and that's what I, what that's you know, I think we need to give accolades to Voyager when it deserves it because I think one of the reasons why Warlord works as well as it does is that this is an episode that has obviously been paying attention mm. to the show. And there are weird emotional beats to the relationship between Neelix and Cass that have been developing for the past two and a half years. This episode is aware of them. This episode uses them. Uh, You know, I think when when Cass is saying, you know, look, you don't like me spending time with other people. You always want to get involved. These are things that we have seen in the past. And that, you know, yes, the character of Tyrion is using this knowledge to drive a wedge between uh, Neelix and Cass to cover up for the fact that they are planning to escape from the uh, ship and go off and kill the Altark of this planet. And I think it's really well done. Like it, it, it's something that the emotional core of who these characters are and the past experience that they have been having are being used by an external force to give justification to the to the actions of the episode and completely logically set up the course of events that are being undertaken. And it's really well done. Yeah. I guess my one uh, thing that I wish Tyrion Kess would have said is that, I don't know, we just, Neelix apparently has a spot pass, right? Because he is openly hanging out with these ladies. He's not, like, secretive about it. If he were worried about Kess finding out, you know, he wouldn't be doing, he, he wouldn't be, you know, bragging to Kim in Paris and, you know, with Bellana and all like that. And, I don't think that's necessarily Bellana's sexual fantasy ideal, by the way, but that's a different story. Um, and so, 
I mean, Neelix is always spending time with other people. Neelix is the morale officer. He's flitting around all the time. Like, this is a perfect opportunity for Kess to say, listen, you got really upset when I was hanging out with Tom Paris, but look at what you're doing. Like, Yeah, 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 yeah. That That's certainly true. But then again, I mean, there's only so much they can take yeah, back because this isn't really Kess. Well, I, I, I want to talk about, about Jennifer Lean then because I, I think that, you know, this will be a theme throughout the third season podcasts i think where you know jennifer lean goes away at the end of the the season uh the character of Cass goes away i'm not going to tell you how or why she goes away but you just know that she goes away to make room for seven of nine um i really wish that they had not done that because Mm. again jennifer lean is giving a very very strong performance in this episode that is very dynamic and very i mean you can't look away from the performance it is so well done and there's uh, 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 I don't know. It's just like she's 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 giving the kind of TOS performance that in a lesser actor would mm. be chewing the scenery, but she's able to imbue it with an emotional core that feels real. That it, I mean, it could veer off into intendant territory from DS Nine, mm. yeah. But she she sidesteps that. Yeah, I mean, in a way, they do cheat a little by having Tyron's grandiosity be his undoing, and therefore. You know, if she's hamming it up a little bit, that is this character. And also, as the episode is going around, you can almost get the sense that, you know, Kess is doing whatever she can to fuck with Tyron. And so, therefore, he, you know, like, don't I picture her, like, holding him, he's trying to run and escape, and then she lets go, and he just runs and crashes into the wall. Like, that's what he's doing every so often (laughs) in this episode. She's driving him into these unraveling depths of insanity. And so, yeah, any, any over the topness of it works with it. And I mean, I really love her physicality in this episode. She's like jumping around tables and like, you know, sliding all over the place and just doing all these like acrobatics as she's doing her performance practically. And it's, I, again, she is, she's burning on a very high intensity level in this. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned her physicality in this episode because I think that's another way that she is very smartly, yeah. you know, differentiating these two characters. But it's also just so weird, yeah. and it, it, there's something about this performance that is just fascinating to watch. I mean, the, the, the ways in which Tyrion Kess mm-hmm. is interacting with her inner circle, the ways in which she eats. I mean, it, it's just so strange. Yeah, and, what it's, I mean. This episode makes it clear just kind of how tiny Jennifer Lean is because she there yeah. there aren't you know there are a lot of opportunity a lot of moments where they can't just put her on a box you know or whatever and yet you know she's playing much larger than she is I mean she she is, as you said you can't look away she is this tiny presence who is just drawing all of the energy it's crazy <laughs> and. Yeah, yeah. And then and then also the, you know, the the kind of I guess the development of the forgotten telekinetic powers yeah. that Cass has, you know, all the way back from Cold Fire from the second season where they haven't really done anything with that and to have the character of Tyrion it you know it it makes sense yeah. right like you're talking about i mean on the one and i think that's the other reason why this feels like a TOS episode because it is patently ridiculous that there's like this 200 year old yeah. guy running around from body to body and it's like okay whatever like this is really strange but we'll just go with it because this is what we're getting but it is the case where the the character of Tyrion would obviously latch onto these abilities yeah. because he is a sociopath and he has a grudge against whatever. Um, I mean, there's no indication really given why he wants to be the Autark again, except he wants to be the Autark because he feels like he was, I guess, deposed for a bad reason and he wants it back. So it's a grudge thing. Simple lust for power too. You know, once there, there are certain people, again, this is something that reads different in 2017, uh, who will do power at any cost, even at the expense of the, the sanity of themselves and everybody around them. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. But I think that the the I don't know, the the wrinkle for me is and this is something that I always grapple with with this episode, the very end of it where you know, Kess is able to when when Tuvok goes down to the planet and he has their little magical device to try and get rid of yeah. the the 
you know, consciousness of Tyrion out of Cass and it fails uh, because it takes, you know, a few minutes to boot up. Um, <laughs> and, and Tuvok is talking to Tyrion in the jail cell and then is able to um, get Cass to, to come back mm. for a few minutes. And Cass is like, I'm fighting against him. I'm trying. Yeah. He's very strong, et cetera, et cetera. And what you see throughout the episode is Tyrion fluctuating in and out. Cass is yeah. coming out a little bit more here and there. And it's also becoming a little bit of a hybrid personality, I think, until the very end of the episode when uh, Janeway decides that they want Cass back so much that they are going to uh, involve themselves in this planet mm-hmm. civil war, uh, which is something that's a little strange. Uh, but I think it would have been... I don't know. I get the I get the impulse to have that last scene with Tuvok and Kess yeah. to talk about how Kess's psychic abilities are developing and how this is going to affect her going forward. But I also think that it might have been just a really nice moment for Kess as a a character development moment to have her be the one to fight Tyrion off. I, I don't know. I keep going back and forth about that. And I'm curious what your thoughts are about. That. I mean, I got the sense that, you know, yes, they need this thing to like, I'm thinking of this kind of an RPG term. She's the one who does all the damage. And then just in the cut scene, you know, Tuvok finishes it off. Like she, she's reduced all of Tyrion's each HP throughout the episode. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't okay. feel like she, hasn't done anything i don't feel like she's been damseled or anything like that i don't feel like you know tuvok you know is the white knight who saved her like this is tyran is a very strong enemy that they're facing and they do need to do a several pronged attack and there is a physical component to what's going on there but at the same time uh kes is the first host who has been able to fight him off and who is strong enough to fight him off and use him against himself and I don't know. I, I, I do feel like she gets most of the lifting in the episode. Yeah, I think that's true. And I, I, I think the other part of that, which is, is key and we can't forget, is that Cass is the one who effectively murders him as well. Yeah. Hmm. And, and I, I think that that's a very interesting choice for the show to make because I don't think that Cass is the kind of character that we would expect to murder someone. And... That last scene with her and Tuvok where they're discussing the events yeah. of the episode and, and Tuvok is saying, you know, you're going to be changed by this. And, you know, you basically, you know, we don't know uh, how this is going to affect you. You just have to go along for the ride. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that I don't mean to criticize Voyager, but but if this was a different television show, I think I would be much more optimistic about where Kess was going to go after that. Cause it feels like it's setting something up. Yeah. It's not but, like she's going to go into a dark place in the next episode or she's going to have, you know, we're, we're not going to be seeing her. She'll, she's going to be the normal Kess next week. Probably. Like, I think, yeah, I think so. But, but, but what, it, I don't know, like what it comes down to is like, they like Kess. Hmm. They like the character. They like the actor. Why get rid of her? Like, I just, I don't get it. Like, this is probably one of the best episodes of the show in a season. And it's all on Jennifer Lean's shoulders. And so, you know, well, I don't know what they were thinking, frankly. Like, Kess or Harry Kim, it doesn't seem like a choice to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, I I don't. I had said, like, it, they forgot that Kess is a character. They certainly forgot that she has psychic powers. And when they remember her and remember her psychic powers, they they use the fuck out of it. But I think generally, again, it seems like the Jerry Taylor era doesn't really know what to do with these characters. They don't know how to deal with an ambiguous character like Suter. This could have been placing Kess into the new Suter role in a lot of ways. Like yeah, somebody, yeah. Because at this point, she is... I mean, I don't think Tuvok is worrying that she's going to go on a murdering spree after this. At the end of the day, they know that Kess will be doing the right thing. And that I don't think that she really murdered Tyron so much as she exercised his spirit in a lot of ways. I mean, this is somebody who should have died 200 years ago, is being kept alive through unnatural, unnatural means, and she's banishing a spirit, really. But she still murdered him. Well... <laughs> But either way, um, I think it can be both. Things, yeah, right? and, like, and, and either way, you know, she she does have to. Star Trek is. 
I mean, this was a big theme of a lot of DS9, the fact that sometimes you're going to be faced with enemies who won't be reasoned, and the only way to deal with them is to have the biggest stick, and what does that mean? And, yeah, you know, this is an opportunity where, you know, yes, Kess, most of the time you are going to be able to... Uh, I mean, one of the big themes of DS9 was the fact that sometimes you're going to be faced with a, a, an antagonist who is not going to listen to reason and diplomacy, and really the only way to deal with that is to have the biggest stick and hope your cause is righteous. And, you know, this is a this is a big theme, and this is something that really could be in this case. It, I don't think anybody disagrees that Tyron needed to be stopped, and I don't think anybody disagrees at the end of the episode that this is somebody who's not going to stop until he's dead and gone, and the right thing to do, the thing that will save the most lives is to, you know, destroy this one person. And, you know, how do you deal with that? And yeah, yeah. I, I don't know if Voyager is going to be able to deal with that theme well. And so, it, again, it's going to be another thing they just sweep under the rug and hope we forget about. Yeah, I think you're right. Well, and, and I think the last thing to talk about before we wrap this episode up, I mean, aside from the fact that uh, Tyrion and his wife Almost kiss, but it's 1996, so we can't see <laughs> yeah. women kiss on television yet. Uh, you know, just another moment where you're like, wow, this show is old. Um, is there's no discussion whatsoever about Janeway and Voyager's involvement in mm. what is essentially a, a coup attempt or a civil war. <clears throat> and I don't know that there's a lot to say about it because it's not the point of the episode, and the episode doesn't even seem to be aware that that would be a question that would occur to anyone. But uh, it is a little weird that Janeway doesn't have a throwaway line like, normally we don't yeah. involve ourselves in the coup attempts of other worlds, but blah, blah, Since blah. Since we you saved just... Tyran in the first place, this is, you know, we, right. we that's when we took ownership of the problem, and we've got to see it through to the end. I mean, that was the uh, false prophets. She made that kind of a... Uh, logical deduction and it would apply here and i guess it's the kind of thing where the people watching star trek voyager at this point were longtime star trek fans and so they just kind of dispense with that because we don't need to hear the same discussions over and over again i don't know came to that same realization Uh, i just did yeah i guess we just have to make mention of the fact that the tyrant is named tyran and that's about it (laughs) <laughs> yeah it is a little obvious, <laughs> i think all right well i think that's it for this episode of the podcast if you have any thoughts about features end part two or warlord please go to truckaboutshow.com and leave a comment we would love to read your thoughts go to our patreon patreon.com slash truckaboutshow it also supports our other podcast tuning in weirdly enough this week we're covering the x-files episodes the list and too shy and the list also features a returning dead person who is maybe inhabiting the body of someone else so just another weird thematic resonance uh like i said go to patreon.com slash truckaboutshow and give now facebook tuning instagram we are on there truckaboutshow is our username And as always, please leave us an iTunes, Apple podcast review for Truckabout. It is the best way for new people to find the show, especially since, and it is finally time to announce this, uh, that we have been talking about Star Trek Discovery for a long time, even before it had a name. We have been mentioning it on the podcast. It is now, I think, less than two weeks away from being aired for the first time, the first new Star Trek episode in I think over 12 years, if my math is correct. Yes, because Star Trek Enterprise ended in May of 2005, so it has been over 12 years. Uh, We are going to take a little pause. We did a a poll on the Patreon, and we also did a poll on Twitter about a month ago asking people uh, their opinion about whether or not we should pause Trek about while we did weekly Discovery Podcast, and the overwhelming majority of people voted, yes, pause Voyager. So uh, we're just giving you a little bit of Thank a warning you, that... Uh, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> we're enjoying Voyager, <laughs> but we're just giving you a little bit of a warning that next week when we talk about the Voyager episodes... I, I hope you're ready for this, Richard. Oh, no. The Q and the Gray. Oh, no. And Macrocosm. Oh, that. That's going to be it for Voyager until November. So... Are the uh, if these two are bad episodes, I'm not gonna want to watch any more in November. 
Yeah, it, 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 this might be a this might be kind of a coincidentally bad place to leave Voyager, oh, no. honestly. But uh, uh, we'll find out next week. Uh, but yeah, so so next week will be the last Voyager podcast for for a couple of months. Uh, then we'll be starting Star Trek Discovery uh, in two weeks, um, and the the podcast will be coming out a little bit erratically, only because our goal is to it'll be coming out like on time. Uh, but probably not on Tuesday because the plan for us is to record on Sunday and get it out as quickly as possible. So we, it may come out on Sunday, depending on if I get it edited and done and everything. It might come out on Monday, but it'll probably come out like, you know, it'll just appear suddenly in your podcast feed. And you'll be very excited because you'll have watched Discovery and you'll be really, really, really excited to hear what we think about it. So get ready for that. This is a very exciting time for Trek About. It's a very exciting time for Richard and I. And it's a very exciting time for all of you because it's a new Star Trek show and we have a whole new set of characters to discuss. We have a whole new set of adventures to discuss. And good God almighty, I just hope the show is good. I hope it doesn't that get is my one. after the first <laughs> That is season. my one I know. Hope. I'm worried. All right. Well, next week, the Q in the Gray and Macrocosm. And then that is it for Voyager for a couple of months. So... Please enjoy those episodes.